and Grace Point. Happy Pride Weekend. We are so glad you're here today. Um, yesterday was such an incredible experience being a part of the Pride Parade and being there and getting to talk to so many people who were interested in learning more about Grace Point. And one of the things I noticed out of all the conversations I had, there were really two things that kept emerging. One was people who would say, I have been really, really hurt and burned by religion, but I really, really, really want community. Um, that, was, that was one of the first things I noticed, is that there's a lot of pain, and yet there's this sense of, of longing. And then the other thing was, um, if your church really is what you say it is, it sounds great, <laughs> right? Which is sort of this, like, I mean, I, we all know that the bait and switch exists, right? Um, and so I hope you're finding, if you're joining us from uh, being at Pride yesterday, we hope you're finding Grace Point to be a place where there is no bait and switch, there is no other shoe that's going to drop on you. Um, you are welcome here, and you're affirmed here, and you're embraced here, and we're thrilled to have you with us today. So uh, I wanted to take a couple weeks here at the end of June. We're going to start a new series um, called Unconventional Wisdom uh, on the first Sunday of July, and that series is going to focus on sayings that we hear a lot um, that seem to have some sort of truth to them that people accept as true. Uh, like, for example, God helps those who help themselves. How many of you have heard that before? Okay. Uh, oh, this is one of my favorite ones. The Bible clearly says. <laughs> How many of you heard that one before? Yeah. So we're going to spend a few weeks uh, uh, together starting in July through August, and we're going to be looking at some of those things. What we're going to do today and next week, uh, there are two real, I mean, there are lots of things, but there are two things that are sort of central to the Christian tradition, at least the way most of us probably grew up. Rituals that take place. Um, communion being one, Eucharist, which we're going to talk about today, and the other is baptism. And I think one of the questions I hear from people in the progressive Christian world so often is like, what place do those things have in a progressive Christian church? Do they have a place? And if so, what is it? And so I wanted to take some time today to talk a little bit about Eucharist, communion. Next week, we're going to dive into talking about baptism a bit. Uh, so I want to begin with, uh, and I'm not going to quote this verbatim uh, because, um, I, you know, I would have to edit it to quote it verbatim, uh, but uh, there's a guy named N.T. Wright who's a theologian who was, for a lot of us, when we were leaving behind conservative Christianity, he was sort of a gateway drug um, to, like, leaving. Uh, he's not a progressive person, but he was more so than we were, right? And one of the things he says about the Eucharist that I loved, he says that when Jesus wanted to explain who he was, and what he was up to in the world. When he wanted to explain that to his followers, he did not give them a doctrine, he did not give them a dogma, he gave them a meal. And so, what is this meal that we call the Eucharist communion, and, and what role does it play? For 2,000 years, at the center of the Christian tradition has stood a meal. Um, and, and now we're sort of going, I don't know, what, what do we do with it, and what place does it have in our gathering. So there are lots of names for this, by the way, and I realize that I call it Eucharist, which is not what I grew up with, but it's what has um, come to mean a lot to me now. But I want to show you. Here, here's um, Eucharist. How many of you grew up calling it Eucharist? Anybody? Okay. Communion? A lot of former Southern Baptists in the room. Um, common table? Anybody grew up calling it common table? table? What? Lord's Supper? Okay. Uh, mass? Okay. Proud, right? Um, an agape feast or meal, anybody grew up calling it that? Or in the book of Acts, it calls it, it just refers to what we know today as the Eucharist communion as breaking bread. Um, 
So that's, those are sort of all the names. My favorite, as I mentioned, is Eucharist. And if you break it down etymologically in the Greek language, the word Eucharist, it comes from two words that have been mashed up together. It's the word uh, you, which is well or good, and the word charismai, which means grace or gift. So literally, the word Eucharist means the good gift. Uh, and it's actually a word that is often translated as thanksgiving. So the center of whatever Eucharist is, it has something to do with gratitude. It has something to do with a gift. It has something to do with sharing that gift and that thanksgiving with others. For 2,000 years, Christians have celebrated. And in the beginning of the church, it wasn't like something... I'll tell you this. I grew up Free Will Baptist before we became liberal Southern Baptists. And in the Free Will Baptist Church, we, we celebrated communion once a year on a Saturday night. We were really afraid somebody would catch us doing it. And so it was once a year on a Saturday night. And we'd also do a, a foot washing thing with it, but we didn't call it that. We called it foot washing, but it was, it's sounds more painful. Same exact thing. Um, you know, when we, when we transitioned to the Southern Baptist church, we took it once a quarter. Um, most recently in, in Kentucky at our church, we had geared up to celebrating it every week. And in the, in the original Christian narrative, Christian community, Eucharist was a weekly experience and it wasn't just taking a little bit of bread and dipping it in a cup. It was a full blown meal which we'll see a little bit as we dive into it. But some of the things that have centered us, so for 2,000 years, a meal has stood at the center of the Christian tradition, and for 2,000 years, we have argued about it. Right? And here are some of the questions we've argued about. Who can participate in the Eucharist? Can anybody participate? Is there, do you have to have like a membership card to participate? Like what gives you the ability to participate? Who can serve it? Who can serve communion? Uh, what, I grew up, it was only clergy, which just happened to be men, right? Uh, not just happened to be. They've done, they did a pretty good job at keeping women away from the table. Um, but it was men, right? Clergy. How does it work? What is the thing? Is, does something happen during the Eucharist? I mean, you had the whole Catholic-Protestant split, and one of the big debates was what actually happens in the Eucharist. Does something happen to the bread and wine that it becomes something else? Or is it just symbolic? Like what is actually going on there? And then how often should you do it, right? Is it something you should do weekly? Is it something you should do quarterly, annually, biannually? Uh, you know, you can find arguments for all of it. But I think what's super interesting is the reason we're talking about this now is because, that, is because food, specifically a common meal where everybody brought something to share, was central to the life and ministry of Jesus. So what we are talking about is not something that right before Jesus is executed, he says, you know what we haven't done yet? We haven't had dinner. Right? That's not it. Jesus, if you, if you check out his life, his life was centered around table fellowship, sitting at table, eating food, and celebrating the arrival of the kingdom of God. So that was central to it. And so Christians began to make this a practice. And very early on, so the earliest gospel we have is probably the gospel of Mark, which was written sometime after the year 70. Um, so that's quite a while. I mean, Jesus died in the late 20s, early 30s. So you're talking around 40 years after the life of Jesus, somebody writes a story about Jesus that we have. Paul wrote, uh, the genuine letters of Paul, there are seven of them. He wrote about in the early 50s, a lot of these letters. So they're the closest thing we have to anything connected to the life of Jesus. And in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians, he writes to a community that is just absolutely in relational shambles. You think about an issue, they're fighting about it. Right? You think about something that could cause conflict, they're doing it. 
And one of the central issues he has with them is how they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's the language they use in the text. How they celebrate the common meal. Because they're doing something with it that we'll jump into in just a bit, um, but we're not going to read that part. They're doing something with it that is the antithesis of it. They've taken the Lord's Supper and they've sort of made it an anti-Lord's Supper, an anti-Christ Supper. So I want to read you what Paul says, uh, the tradition that he was given about the, the Eucharist. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received a tradition from the Lord, which I also handed to you. On the night which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me. He did the same thing with the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, do this to remember me. Every time you eat this, then Paul adds on this, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you broadcast the death of the Lord until he comes. So Paul says, I, had a, I got a tradition I received. And that tradition is about the night Jesus was handed over. And that's the literal language there. It isn't betrayed, it's handed over. The night he was handed over, he took bread and he said this thing and he took wine and he said this thing. And this has sort of been one of the founding formative texts for Christians on we do this as a way of remembering, right? As a way of engaging with something that happened a long, long time ago. But this is not like Jesus didn't just decide to have a meal right before. This is not like his last meal because he knew, like, this is something he had been doing all along. And I think this is something that as they did it, these first Christians realized that the, the Christ was with them every time they sit down to the table. That as they got together and shared, something remarkable happened. And this is just what Jesus did. In Luke 15, there's this great line where Jesus is um, regularly eating with people who were known as sinners. There was tax collectors, and then there were sinners. Uh, and when we think of sinners, we think of people who have committed a certain list of transgressions, right? But in the biblical world, like in the Bible, the, the category of sinner was a catch-all for anybody who was ritually impure. People who couldn't go to the temple and engage God at the temple. They had maybe an illness, or they, commit, they had some sort of um, disease like leprosy, or something had kept them from being a part of the temple. And they were always kept at an arm's length. And we've talked about this before. To be around them put you in danger of being unclean. And what Jesus did is he just threw a party and said, everybody come. And the religious leaders are furious. And notice this line, that, what they say to him in Luke 15. They were gathering around Jesus to listen. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling, saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He welcomes them and eats with them. I do not believe they would have had a big problem with him welcoming them if, instead of eating with them, he'd have told them that they were sinners. And if he would have said, no, you're sinners. Stop being sinners. But that's not Jesus' move. What does Jesus move? People show up. They're known to be sinners. And what does Jesus say? Anybody got some bread? Anybody got some wine? Let's eat. There's something powerful about Jesus' meals. This happens. And I don't think this is a one-off. I think this is something that Jesus continually gets in trouble for. He's eating dinner with the wrong folks, according to the religious leaders. He tells lots of stories about wedding parties where people who are invited, don't come, and so they go and they bring in every single person they can find to come be a part of the wedding feast. There's something powerful about this image that is so deeply ingrained in the Christian tradition that we're still doing and participating in some way in the Eucharist 2,000 years later. So I'm going to let the cat out of the bag early. I actually do believe there's a really important place for the Eucharist in the Christian community. Um, I, I believe there's a central place for it in some ways, and we'll talk about why. But I want to tell you, when I was in college, um, 
I was always told, and you've probably heard me say this already, but I was always told not to take religion courses in college because it would wreck my faith. Anybody else get told that before you went to college? How many of you found out that those people were exactly right? It absolutely wrecked your faith. They were right to be, they were right to be worried. And I remember when I was taking New Testament, the professor we had was openly had told us before class started, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I'm a New Testament scholar. Uh, and so we were 20-year-old evangelicals, so clearly we thought we knew better than he did. Uh, and our job in the class was to convert him to Christianity. And as he started teaching the course, I found that I was just interested. Like he was teaching me things about the Bible I didn't know, things that were about context and culture and where these texts came from and all this, all, all this brilliant stuff. And so while my friends were like arguing with him in class about how many letters Paul wrote, um, I was secretly sending him, e- I think email existed, I was secretly sending him emails asking him to have coffee with me. I was like Nicodemus in the night, <laughs> hiding at an obscure university coffee shop, hoping to just, and so we would sit down and we would engage around stuff in the New Testament, and we then started sharing about our lives and our upbringings, and he said to me, one, unsolicited, he said to me, you know the only time I want to believe any of this stuff? By this stuff, he meant any of this stuff, <laughs> right? Any faith stuff. He said, the only time I want to believe it is when I, my wife's an Episcopalian and I go to church with her. And during the Eucharist, when I watch people go and receive bread and wine, there's something about that that pulls at me. There's something about that that draws me in, even when I don't want to be drawn in. Um, and so that, that has been formative for me to have that in my brain all these years. That there's something about that event, that ritual, that act that somehow brought this person who had no reason, uh, no interest in having anything to do with organized faith. And it brought him closer in some way. Who you ate with in the biblical world um, wasn't just a decision about where you were going to eat and what you were going to do. It was a social, religious, political, and economic statement. Right? How many of you think about all those things when you go to lunch? <laughs> like, I'm about to make a political, religious, social, economic statement by who I ate lunch with. And here's what, here's what I mean. Like, you would only eat with people in your class or your, your station in life. Right? So, so if you were a wealthy person, you would only eat with wealthy people. Specifically, you would only eat with wealthy men. Right? Women would have their own space to go eat, but you wouldn't be engaging in the same environment. So if you were a rich person, you would never eat with somebody of a lower uh, economic status. If you were a free person, you would never eat with a slave. If you were a male who in the patriarchal societies, you would never eat with a female. And so for Jesus to be sitting down with people, you know, inviting rich people and poor people, inviting slave and free, inviting male and female, uh, religious and irreligious, like bringing all those people into the same table, Jesus is making a massive statement about what God is like and what the kingdom of God. That's the language he uses, which sounds a little, but if you just think about it like this, like if God were in charge of the world, how would it be ordered? How would it be set up? What would the world look like if God were in charge? And so I actually think, in the beginning, what we mean when we say the word Eucharist communion, it was a, about a subversive hospitality. Because who you invited to dinner was a polarizing statement. You were being very clear about who you were okay with and who you aligned yourself with. 
So, like, imagine in our current climate, you were photographed on Facebook having lunch with a specific political candidate. Like, that would be a statement of some sort, right? You'd be saying, at least I'm interested in hearing what this person has to say. In Jesus' day, it was very similar, except that if you were making the wrong kind of statements, they would try to execute you pretty quickly, which is actually what happens to Jesus. And in first, so 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes and says, here's, where the, here's why we do this. Uh, what he's writing about is he's writing about a division in the church that came about based on their communion practice. And here's what he says. Some of you are arriving to the meal early, and you're eating the food, and you are getting drunk. And when everybody else who comes later arrives, there is nothing left for them. And he actually says, don't you have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you want to embarrass the people of God's community? And here's the ultimate problem. Who might be able to show up early? People who aren't working. Because they pay people to do that. Right? So you have a, a, the more elite group of people, wealthy group of people, top of the food chain group of people who are coming early and they are bringing that good food. Right? Like, there, there are certain people I know um, that I've known for years that whenever they show up to a potluck, you go that way. You know what I'm saying? You just have developed a sixth sense. Like, there's, there's a dear friend of ours who her daughter is a potter and she makes pottery and she makes serving dishes. And whenever you see one of those serving dishes, it's completely legal to throw elbows. It is not, it's every person for himself, right? Like, you're just going for it. So they're, they're making, they're sort of like coming and they're bringing good food and good wine and they are eating it and they're gorging and they're getting drunk and they're having a good time. And then people who show up later who don't have economic means show up and there's scraps left. And Paul is writing saying, this is a kind of division that does not exist in the Jesus community. We do not make people who have less feel like they are worth less because they're not. They have equal participants at the table of Jesus. And so Paul is arguing with them and saying, as long as you have divisions, you're turning the, the Lord's Supper, the Jesus meal, into an anti-Christ meal. Because the moment you have divisions in a community based on socio socioeconomic status, based on anything else, the moment you have a division, you have created an un-Christ-like um, division in the community. Because Jesus is clearly always bringing people together. So I think that the Eucharist was about being subversive. It was about saying, oh yeah, we can only eat with who? Oh, watch this. We'll eat with everybody. And we will not just eat with everybody. We're going to have rich people eating with poor people and poor people are going to eat rich people food and rich people are going to eat poor people food. And we're all going to share the basic necessities of life because if everybody shares food together, nobody goes hungry. Are you with me? So think about this. When Jesus feeds a mass group of people, 5,000 people, what's the lesson there? Well, I mean, Jesus can do cool stuff. Or is the lesson there, if we would all share, like the, the young boy who opens up his Long John Silvers, Captain D's, whatever, if we all share, there's enough for everybody. All right? So the Eucharist is calling us to this subversive practice this subversive hospitality of everybody's welcome at this table. Can you see how ridiculous it is that we've put up a fence around the Eucharist when in reality what it was meant to be is a place where we knock those sorts of things down? I'll never forget um, a, coming, a woman coming up to me after communion several years ago, and she was just weeping. And 
I said, What's, is there something I can do? And she said, I just need, I just need to tell you that 20-some years ago, uh, I came out and I was excommunicated from my church. Um, the, the thing they took away from me that was the hardest is they took away communion. And so even when I went back to visit my family and I would go, they would just like pass it around me. Anybody else ever been passed around? Like, yeah, they, they take it and they're like, oh, you're not allowed, and they pass it around. And she said, that has been a source of pain. And she said, I came this morning, and I, I'm, no long, I'm no longer Christian, but when you invited everybody, I went and I took some bread and, and wine. And she said, I'll never be a Christian again, but this was a healing moment. That is Eucharist. Eucharist is everybody. And the moment we start putting lists around uh, who can be, the moment we start building fences and walls and barbed wire around it, um, which is a thing our society really is into, the moment we do that, we, have, we are no longer celebrating the Eucharist. It is an mi- empty, meaningless ritual. And you would get more full if you went somewhere else to eat. The nourishment of Eucharist for us is not um, that it's some sort of exclusive members-only club. The nourishment of Eucharist is that we join hand-in-hand with every member of the human family. So it is a subversive experience. It's about hospitality. I also think the Eucharist in Jesus' day, and I'm just not going to spend a long time on this, it was a protest against the temple system. So here's the thing. Jesus was Jewish. That still shocks people. I don't know how. It's still, like, there was never a day where he's like, Eureka, let's start a religion. Um, Jesus was always Jewish, right? And so Jesus was part of a movement in Judaism that rejected the temple system. And Jesus' refrain was a quote from Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I.e., God doesn't need to kill stuff to love you. Isn't that good news? Can you imagine if, if you have kids, if they did something wrong? Can you, I'm just trying to picture my son coming to me, having done something that he shouldn't have done, and me saying, well, where's the goat? You've got to kill something. I would never do that because I don't want him to kill stuff. Right? Can you imagine? And Jesus is like, no, 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 this is not, God isn't looking for you to kill stuff to get God on your side. God is on your side. And God is inviting you to wake up to the fact that there's mercy and justice to be done all around you. And I think one of the things Jesus meant, and we could talk about this a long time, I think one of the things Jesus meant in a room full of people, full of these disciples, when he said, he holds up bread and he holds up wine, this is my body, this is my blood, I think there's a wink and a nudge to the temple system saying, over there they're separating body and blood. And some people, a very small percentage, are getting very wealthy. You know what our body and blood are? It's when we come together and we share. Our sacrifice is sharing our stuff with each other. Our sacrifice is a table that is open to everyone. I think there's something powerful about that. And I think that's one of the reasons he gets killed. It's because he's having dinner with the wrong people and he's saying, you you know that religious system? You don't need it. That's not good for business. So three things, and then we're going to celebrate communion. First, I I think communion still matters. And I think communion... um, connects us in several ways to really important things. First, I think communion connects us to the tradition of hospitality and subversion. I think when we celebrate communion together, what we are saying every time is that we want to be a community that in a world that continually divides people up based on, pick the category, right? Economics, gender, race, sexuality, sports team, like you pick it, right? 
in a world that continually divides people, we are standing together against that and saying, at this table, all are equal. It is an equitable table for every single human being. And there are, are there bugs and kinks to work out of that? Yes. But when we gather for communion, we're saying that at our best, the Christian story is about tearing down the dividing wall, not building up new ones. At our best, and we have lost this narrative for 2,000 years, the Christian story is not about who else can we possibly exclude. It is about how in the world can we make sure everybody knows they're in. How can we make sure everybody knows they're included? There's something powerful about an open table in a world that is continually trying to tell us, no, 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 you should dislike each other more. Um, Second, communion reminds us, Eucharist reminds us of the work we've been given to do and how we are called to engage it. The work we've been given to do is no small task. It is the healing and transformation of the world. And after that, we'll get on to something else. Some of you will get that later. Yeah, that's our work. Our work is the healing and transformation of the world. One of the most powerful things yesterday um, was watching free mom hugs folks go up and give free mom hugs. And, and there was something being given and something being received from both sides of that hug, right? And I do believe that the world can be transformed through hugs, through embrace, through seeing one another. There's something powerful about that. And that's our call. That's our work. That's what we've been given to do. And the way we've been called to do it is also not real easy. It's through self-giving love. I love this line Paul says here. Every time you take this bread in this cup you, cup, you broadcast the Lord's death. Now, what does that mean? It means that every time you engage this meal, you are saying, here's how the world gets put back together. The thing about Jesus is he's willing to bleed, but he's not willing to make his enemies bleed. He's willing to go where the pain is. He's willing to offer himself up instead of demanding from others. And I think those are the questions we have to wrestle with as, as if we're going to be quasi somehow connected to Jesus people in the 21st century is how do we broadcast that meaning? Right, Jesus did not die so that God could love you. But in the way Jesus died, love is revealed. And in the way Jesus died, we are given a vision for how we are called to engage the world. So we have to ask questions like, are we going to hold on to power and have power over people? Or are we going to seek to empower people? Right? That's a question. Are we going to demand from people or are we going to engage in generosity? Are we going to retaliate against the people who have said mean things to us or the people who have been cruel to us? Are we going to retaliate or are we going to seek a way of compassion and, and forgiveness? Those are the questions we're called to wrestle with. It's, it reminds us, when we take this bread in a moment and dip it in this cup, we are reminded there is work to do in the world, and this is the pattern. Open ourselves up, break ourselves open, and pour ourselves out in love for those around us. And lastly, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but it's too important to me to, to not mention again, I really do believe that communion, Eucharist, is a time when we are gathered to commune with each other. I, I, I can't tell you... Uh, metaphysical stuff. But I can tell you this, there's something profound and powerful about coming down and looking another human being in the eyes and being told that you are loved by God. There's something powerful and profound about, and this is why I think for me, I love when we're served the elements, not just when we go pick them up. Right? Because what we're ultimately saying is this is a personal thing. This is a thing we're doing together. This is something we're participating in 
as a community. And I don't know how often, but you get to look a person in the eyes today. Uh, and that can be awkward and weird, right? But being human is awkward. And, and being a part of anything is awkward. And there's something about being seen in that moment that is just life-giving. Communion is about communing with each other. This is why, I'm going to be honest with you, I do not think it is improper for there to be laughter during communion. I mean, if this is grounded in Jesus' whole practice, not just his last meal, which was on a bit of a low note. Um, sorry. I realized that was funny now, but I didn't like... Or, right, when, when you think about Jesus' meal practice of being one of celebration, like I think if Jesus was leading like the somber meal club, people would be like, no, there's enough to be sad about. I think Jesus is like leading... I mean, right, can you imagine a, a parade yesterday with nobody celebrating? What would that be like? I think it's okay. I think it's okay to have joy. And there are moments to be reflective, and there are moments to be quiet, and yet there are moments to celebrate, to celebrate who we are, to celebrate our belovedness, to celebrate our inclusion, to celebrate the fact that this isn't just something we get to like, experience and receive, it's something we get to go out into the world and participate in. Like, there's a ton to celebrate around this. So if that's where you are today, in a minute when we take Eucharist, please do not feel like you have to hold that back. And today, wherever you are, if you're in a place of reflection, if you feel like this is in some way, you've gone through a dark period and this, you, you can sort of relate with where Jesus might have been at that Last Supper, then you bring the fullness of who you are to this meal. And you do not have to change that for anyone. You're welcome here. So as we take these elements in a minute, may we be reminded, may we be reminded that in some way this is connected to the fact that we as a community have chosen the Jesus way, which is the way of subversive hospitality. May we remember that there's something powerful about our mission and work in the world, that when we take these elements, it in some ways symbolizes and calls us to a certain kind, a certain new kind of humanity in the world. We are working on a new way to be human to each other. And then, as we engage these elements, may we not lose fact, sight of the fact that there are other people in this room so just to be honest, this experience just ain't you and Jesus. It's us and Jesus, right? It's y'all and Jesus. It's all y'all and Jesus. I got corrected when I said y'all, and they said that's not plural. All y'all is plural. It's all y'all and Jesus. And that's where we're headed. Are you with me? So as always at Grace Point, if you're today in a place where like, I just don't want to engage with this right now, I don't feel like I can participate, please don't feel like you have to. Please don't feel compelled. Please, no, nobody's going to look at you or point, like it's fine. You, you do you, you be where you are, you be who you are. If you would like to participate today, every single one of you, every single human in this room is welcome to engage uh, in this way. So last week we started reading a prayer together and I thought we'd end the teaching. We're going to invite the band to come back up. I thought we would uh, end the teaching today with this prayer that sort of invites us all. So if you uh, could stand as you're able. And let's read this with one another. Come to this table, you who have much faith, and you who have been here often, and you who have come for the first time, you who are at peace, and you who feel despair. We are all part of the human family, and there is a place for us here. Christ invites everyone to the table. May this bread and wine unite us all. And everybody said, amen. amen.